Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Today on Truth and Movies, Jim Jarmusch puts the dead in deadpan in the star-studded zombie comedy The Dead Don't Die. I'm thinking zombies. Why? You know, zombies. Ghouls. The undead. Mexican director Carlos Regardas returns with a three-hour epic expose of masculinity, our time, and in Film Club, Johnny Depp goes way out west in Jim Jarmusch's acid western, Dead Man. Good lord. You're William Blake. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, podcast listeners. It's Michael Leader here in the host chair this week, sitting across from David Jenkins. David, this is almost four for four. I know, it's crazy. Please, please write in if you're getting bored. I, we'll, we'll switch this up. Well, luckily, we're switching it up with the second guest this week. We have Matt Thrift, I think for the first time this year. I Welcome back, Matt. I think it is, yeah. Christmas was the last time I was here. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been around. You've been around. have <laughs> been watching films, I hope. I've been watching some Hanging films, around yeah. street corners, <laughs> watching films. Have you seen yesterday, Matt? I haven't, no, and I'm not in much of a rush to. <laughs> well, we have a, a, an email here from Tom Jowett saying, just listened to your review of yesterday and felt compelled to write in. I haven't seen it and I don't really intend to. I don't hate myself that much. However, I work for a cinema, so I've seen the trailer several times. There's a joke in the trailer which I take umbrage with. After playing Yesterday on his guitar, the lead implores that Yesterday is one of the most beautiful songs ever written, to which one of the other characters responds, well, it's not Fix You, it's not Coldplay. I can only assume that this joke is written in pursuit of laughter, the joke presumably being that Coldplay are a bit naff, a bit lame, and further proof that the world without the Beatles has become a poorer place. That's a bit rich, isn't it? I'm slightly reluctant to defend Coldplay, who are actually a bit lame, IMO. However, I find it pretty unfair for a film which is so cloyingly middle of the road to fire shots at Coldplay for being bang average. This film is Coldplay. All the best, Tom. Tom, wow, you've really blown yesterday apart there. <laughs> Scathing. Scathing, right? And you've not even seen the film. Maybe you should go and see the film, see if, uh, see if it but, pans I mean, out. That, that, that's what the film is. It's like there's no argument to be had that the Beatles might be less good than a, another modern band mm-hmm. or... You know, I think as we said on the episode, that there are Fratelli's T-shirts in yes. this film, <laughs> and again, putting up some equivalents there, maybe. Yes. yes. <laughs> let's, and not, it, let's let's not think about it. We should well. go from films that are aggressively naff to maybe films that may be aggressively trying to be cool. Maybe this week we have Jim Jarmusch, the man of the silver hair and the sunglasses indoors. Two films from him this week. Should we start with The Dead Don't Die? 
Yes, up first we have The Dead Don't Die, the latest Troller Than Now comedy from indie legend Jim Jarmusch. In the unremarkable small town of Centerville, the dead are walking. And it's up to the local cops, played by Bill Murray, Adam Driver and Chloe Savini, to investigate and protect their neighbourhood. That's if they can decide on what to call these diabolical beings first. So what are you thinking? You... You really want to know? I'm thinking zombies. What? You know, zombies. Ghouls. The undead. Are you... You're trying to tell me... You're thinking zombies did this. Yep. I love the way that Andrew Driver says ghouls. Ghouls, yeah. ghouls. I, th- I think I'm thinking zombies must have just been the pitch for Jim Jarmusch for this film, right, <laughs> David? Ouch. <laughs> I don't know. He's, he's sort of, I think all through his career, he's messed with genre filmmaking mm-hmm. and sort of put it through the sort of Jarmusch spin dryer and sort of created his own mad contraptions with the parts Mm. and this one is no different I think Um, amongst many many other things the first thing that comes to mind is the kind of original and potentially the best George Romero's Night of the Living Uh Dead it sort of takes both its plot which is like zombies taking over a kind of small American town very sort of sleepy American town and also there's a kind of satirical element as well there it's quite broad about the sort of zombification of America, uh-huh. uh, how current that is, or whether that's something that is taking a long time to occur, he doesn't really say. But um, the film feels like he's kind of written a bunch of sketches and put them in a tombola and then sort of picked them out and filmed them and, and just sort of smushed them in order. And like, I kind of liked it. It was so laid back, you know, it was sort of directionless and it was, he wasn't sort of like pressuring you to like be super invested in anything that was happening but I kind of liked that as a to call something a hangout movie is that a bit like is that a bit lame I mean is is that a term of endearment or is that is, I don't know but like you can hear in the clip the chemistry that um Bill Murray and Adam Driver have the kind of comedy repartee that they have together which is like based a lot on these kind of very 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 like teetering pauses between their line deliveries every time either of them said something I just sort of chuckled to myself and I was like well this what more does a film need to deliver than this really so well maybe I was being a bit uncharitable when I said I'm thinking zombies is the pitch of course I'm sure the pitch was I'm thinking zombies with my mates Bill Adam and Tilda Swinton coming along for the ride and they're all good value aren't they I'm I'm sure that he had like a a napkin he'd wrote some names on and said (laughs) pay me and, <laughs> and, he, and he just came back with this movie you know that's the feeling yeah. and you know in a good way that was just in a good way for you as well uh you know i wasn't i wasn't especially looking forward to this one i am um, i mean i love jarmusch's films pretty much across the board for the most part and i was kind of expecting from what i'd seen of it for it to be this kind of arch maybe slightly glib and God, I, I promised I wouldn't say the word deadpan, but it's it's kind of unavoid, uh-huh. unavoidable when you're about Jarmusch. But, and it kind of was that for about sort of 15, 20 minutes or so. And then it sort of became something else uh-huh. for me, and which is kind of really when I started digging it a whole lot more. And wow, right. there's a real kind of sense of, of melancholy and sort of 
sadness to it. I mean, you know, the first half of the film that these, you know, especially Adam Driver's character is so kind of desensitized to the zombie apocalypse that it's everything is so deadpan, so matter of fact. But then it just it becomes almost like a more of a ghost story, I, I found, than a zombie movie in that, you know, these characters and their the sort of cooperation that they have among themselves to kind of fend off this zombie apocalypse and represents the last sort of vestiges of humanity that they're sort of desperately clinging on to mm-hmm. as they get knocked off one by one. There are shots of like this, the police car that they're cruising around the town in that's kind of shot from overhead with this kind of low-key music and yeah I just found it really quite moving by the end that the last line of the film is you know what a effed up world (laughs) and yeah I mean I just think Chalmers shows such kind of little faith in the world that we live in that the only recourse is to is to destroy it entirely I I thought it was pretty nihilistic and not especially (laughs) funny but really good because of that do you know what it reminded me of I don't know if you guys have ever seen it but one one of my favorite I don't even know what what genre to sort of ascribe it to but it's this film Return of the Living Dead by Dan Mm, O'Bannon it feels very similar to that the Dan O'Bannon film is more kind of like does the sort of you know zombies creeping into a room and you know you're seeing perspective and it's sort of racking up tension but there is that kind of nihilistic tongue-in-cheek like you know we know what's going to happen so let's just let's just go maximum overdrive on this and go go mad a bit so yeah, that's an interesting one to raise because there's almost a specific reference to that um return of living dead of course gave the world tarman and his catchphrase of brains more yeah, brains. brains and in this film the patient zero zombies are played by sarah driver and iggy pop and iggy pop lurches into a diner after hours and demands coffee <laughs> which is almost like an in joke uh, <laughs> kind of self parody there of jim jarmusch's obsession with coffee and cigarettes over the years and i think that while this film didn't really pay off for me as a zombie film i think that genre has been so well trodden over the years and particularly now is in good form with the likes of Trains Busan uh, from Korea a couple of years ago. I think this film played best for me as almost Jim Jarmusch taking stock of his own cinematic universe. The amazing thing coming to this as a fan of his films is there is a cast member from every single one of his previous films in this mm. one um, all the way back to uh, Permanent Vacation Strange in the Paradise Esther Ballant is in here yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in a cameo <laughs> Sarah Dreyer of course his partner and creative conciliary for many years shows up and she's not been in one of his films at least on screen for 30 years at mm-hmm. this point so there's some strange sort of self-mythology self-parody here as well going through while I don't think it pays off for me as so he's killing all his collaborators that's the strange thing Right. Maybe, or, maybe this is end of you know this next next Jarmish film is going to be shiny genre f- anonymous genre film. <laughs> but after Only Lovers Left Alive, where he recast his archetypes as sort of immortal vampire romantics, in this case you have many of his stock characters coming out as lurching, shuffling zombies who are stuck in the same patterns of, of behaviour. It's that's, There's something there. I, I think that compared to his other genre exercises, like Only Love Was Left Alive, like Dead Man, which we'll talk about later, like Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, I don't think it really has a sort of cohesive payoff, or at least a cohesive statement on that genre um, that I, I like in the other films. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, the the subtext of the mm. zombie movie since, you know, since Romero has been so done to death, yeah. you know, the, to the point where, and I think Jamash is clearly aware of this, that he basically just puts it all out there and mm. makes it, you know, total text. And 
the zombie is just another way of, of kind of him demonstrating this sort of palpable sense of loss which for right. for humanity for I mean there's it's not a very gory film which I was kind of expecting mm, it to be mm. you know when the when the zombies are killed they kind of explode in puffs of black smoke yeah. but then there is one scene which and I don't want to spoil where some characters human characters are found dead yeah. and it's a really bloody bloody scene which Adam Driver walks into and and, and makes worse and and I found that really quite uh, powerful mm. and you know Chloe Sevigny's reaction to that sort of to Adam Driver's reaction to it again about this sort of normalization and desensitization and and kind of loss of mm. yeah but, but it takes it, it in the other direction as well which I find quite interesting the whole kind of like raison d'etre of like zombie films is you know a, you know a lot of the reason that people watch them is so they can witness gory deaths of of various kind mm. of varieties so there are sort of six or seven little pockets of characters that he introduces to and we kind of daisy chain between them and follow them but a lot of the little subplots just kind of end it's not that he's not showing a kind of gory payoff that we're not getting any payoff i actually think there's something almost like raising a cap to slightly more sort of amateurish trauma type films uh-huh. you know that sort of don't actually make logical sense and don't pay off to the point where they don't feel finished almost. I know that's like that's probably quite a reach saying like, <laughs> you know, I like the fact that this has got like a major plot deficiency or, you know, or, you know, what we might conventionally call a plot deficiency and and try and justify that as that's the thing. Like with someone like Jarmusch, you think, well, mm. he, he has proven in the past that he can make a movie and like to have a kind of plot end that doesn't go anywhere. You've got to maybe this is the kind of inner tourist of mine coming to life. But my impulse is to try and justify it rather than to believe that he got it wrong so right. it has a real kind of Twin Peaksy affection yeah. for its characters as mm. well which I think really did pay off you miss them as they go there's, there was one bit that really really tickled me that, that I mean there's quite a few like sight gags in the film but mm. you know Jarmusch is very front on that he's been using since I guess Limits of Control or I can't remember what the one was before that but there's kind of head on framing that's pretty much every shot and this is, is shot like that and there's just this amazing kind of split second where all the characters would normally just enter the frame from left or right or from the front and then Tilda Swinton enters a police station and does this little zigzag into the front of the, fr- the frame <laughs> that's just Jarmusch kind of might be worth thing. adding like her, a bit about her character as well because she's like a mad um, mortician <laughs> yeah. the new Scottish mortician yeah. who's also a samurai of some sort. And a techno-pagan or yes. something. There's lots of extra wrinkles to her character in there that she just plays so well. She's fantastic. She's very, very funny in this. Yeah. yeah. Great. <laughs> Tilda Swinton is fantastic. End of. So we put some scores on this and move on. So David, what would you give this in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect? Um, I really love the last bunch of uh, Jarmusch films. Mm. It's a little change of pace from the more kind of wistful and poetic Patterson I'd probably give it a four for anticipation just because maybe the trailers made it look a bit like he was going mainstream mm. probably fours across the board for me I had a really good time with it and I'd, I'd happily sit through it again and again and uh, I think there is stuff to sort of delve into there and look deeper into and yeah I, I think the Twin Peaks thing is, is there as well Matt? Um, I think maybe because I assumed that he was going 
perhaps going to be going a little mainstream mm. I, and the, because the trailer didn't sell it so well I was probably a, a two or a three I wasn't especially looking forward to it but this is my favourite of his for a while I mean um, I, I, you know I got on okay with Patterson but I thought it was a little bit twee mm. so probably yeah fours across the board and I'm really really looking forward to seeing it again with yeah. a little bit of distance on it I'm sorry to be the voice of gloom, but um, I was very excited for this film. I'm very much in the pocket for Jim Jarmusch, and after Only Lovers Left Alive and Patterson, I think he's on quite a hot streak. So probably four in anticipation. Also, it was the opening film at Cannes this year, which I was at, and it was a little bit disappointing. I thought that the jokes became repetitive. It made me even doubt a little bit about Bill Murray's current comedic chops by the end of this film and same with Adam Driver I think there are a few in jokes and references in there that Jim Jarmusch probably could have on a second or third draft maybe made into something better it felt very much like as you said David a napkin pitch make a zombie movie with his friends there you go let's make some money of course I don't want to, of course, say that this king of independent cinema wants to make some money, but it certainly felt like a, a fun project to make with friends. So probably four, three, two, but maybe I'll go back and see the string of melancholy in there, Matt, that you mentioned. That sounds quite fascinating, but thank you for your takes on that. Don't die, gentlemen. Up next, we're going to carry on regardless with our time. <laughs> now it's time for our time. Director Carlos Regalas follows the likes of Silent Light and post Nebrous Looks with this self-reflexive drama following a disintegrating marriage. Regalas himself stars alongside his IRL wife Natalia as Juan and Esther, a couple living on a Mexican cattle ranch. They're in an open relationship which slowly starts to fracture Juan's fragile masculinity. So, Matt, we don't have a clip for this, but set it up for us. Who's Carlos Regardas? What's this film? Should we care? So this is the fifth film from Carlos Regardas. Gosh, how to summarize the career of Carlos Regardas. So his first film was a a movie called Yapon, mm-hmm. um, which was a kind of existential story about a man going into the countryside to top himself. And then he meets this older woman who he has a rather explicit sexual relationship with. His second, again, more explicit sex is a movie called Battle in Heaven, which was all about class divisions mm-hmm. and Catholicism in Mexico City. A couple of years after that, he made a film called Silent Light, which was a story about a a love triangle set in the Mennonite community, sort right, of Dutch right. immigrant community that was kind of riff on Carl Dreyer's film mm. Audette. And his last one was probably his most divisive, which was seven years ago ago now, I believe, uh, called Post Tenebrous Lux. God, how to describe a series of vignettes, autobiographically inspired vignettes about uh, a man's remembrance of his childhood and his, again, kind of sexual breakdown, I guess, right. that, he, that he's having. And um, some of that's so, carried over to this so one. So some of that is carried over to this. This is, I guess, in a way, his most kind of psychologically and narratively conventional uh-huh. film. Uh, it tells a pretty, you know, A to B story, I guess. Uh, it's nearly three hours long, mm. but worth every minute of it, I think. Uh, like you said, so it's about an, an open marriage uh, set on a bull ranch in Mexico. So... It garnered a lot of controversy when it when it premiered at Venice Film Festival last autumn. So 
most of it kind of centered around the fact that Carlos Rigardas has cast himself as mm. the protagonist, Juan. He's cast his wife, who is his usually his editor on his last few movies, Natalia Lopez, as his wife in the film, and his children, again, as well in this one, like he did in, in the last one. So uh, this open relationship begins to kind of disintegrate with the arrival of an American ranch hand played by Phil Berger, mm-hmm. I think. And yeah, it's about kind of jealousies and sexual recriminations as this guy, this international poet, starts to kind of fall apart at the idea of his wife screwing the ranch hand. So you have two forms of indulgence there, casting yourself in, uh, and, and your wife in this film, plus three hours of runtime. Do these indulgences pay off? Uh, I guess this is the big question. This is where a lot of the debate around the film seems to centre. Is this an exercise in vanity mm. and you know, control over his family, you know, sticking them all on screen and as a director telling them what to do. I mean, there's a scene in the movie where he sets up a tryst for his wife and he's, you know, he adjusts the lamp over here. He, you know, creates the perfect frame with these shutters, you know, just like a director would do, uh-huh. setting up a shot. So is this a dude that, you know, perhaps wants to do this in his, in his real life, right. has created an opportunity for him to do it on screen? Or is it a study in all of those things? Is it a study in, in vanity and in control, in jealousy and so on? And I think that regardless of the director's kind of separation from the character Juan that Regardas plays is pretty explicit in the film. I think, you know, I don't think that we really align with that character's subjectivity. I mean, mm-hmm. Regardas is doing too much formally for us to perhaps not think that this guy is... Uh, that there isn't an, a sort of ironic distance perhaps there as well. Interesting. David, you, last week you teased this as being part of, I think, the Cook canon, which is almost <laughs> an offshoot or companion to the Incel canon, which I think you've talked about in the past. So yeah, I mean, all these please expand on this. And, and it's like a family tree of, of, uh, <laughs> of male sexual, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, I mean, one of the things I really like about this film and the fact that he's cast himself is that it's stunt casting in in the most bizarre way because he's kind of written himself and built himself this character who is like a bit of you know just kind of awful in a way <laughs> um it's this idea of a of the liberal poet living in this idyll in Mexico you know he's very open and close with his children his children are seen at the beginning of the film kind of frolicking around in in nature and just making their own way and building their own lives and he seems very kind of happy and calm with that like there's a sort of comic element to the fact that this thing that he is allowed to happen and is very chill about and you know I'm a modern man I can deal with this and he he you know he it's this sort of chronicle of his disintegration and I think it's an amazing film about not just sort of looking at the shame of it that he feels and the and the confusion, but the three hour runtime is it, it sort of looks at the various stages of that this goes through, and you kind of see this trauma playing out in in various different situations, and it's kind of amplified in some ways and muted in others, and it's often pushed quite deep into the text so it's left to simmer in the background and he, he builds this amazing sense of tension there it's almost got a kind of Polanski-esque vibe to it in that you're you know you're waiting for this explosion of anger to to occur but at the same time like the character himself he sort of plays on the fact that he's quite a like physically small slightly weedy guy and 
he's sort of playing on that. Um, but going back to what you said before, I think the film actually premiered in London earlier this year at a festival called um, Frames of Representation. Mm which is a, a festival, the ICA in London. And the concept of the festival is films that cross over between documentary and fiction. So it's like f- films that bring those elements together yeah. in some sort of subtle way as a way to explore the sort of communicative properties of the medium and you know forms of, of expression in like visual media. And um, that film played in that festival as a kind of, documentary you know mm. in a sort of documentary festival and you can see the crossover there but he's not doing this in an explicit way he's not doing it in a in a way that is inviting you to say oh he's made a biography of his of his life i wasn't at the screening but apparently when it did screen in london there was a a very very long q and a afterwards with him present and a lot of angry questions from the audience members like asking him about, well, this obviously is about your life. You know, why would you cast yourself if it's not? And he's like saying, it's not about my life. You know, I mean, I, I think this is a very good thing, but he is very intent on not revealing what his films are about and what his intentions are. I mean, he's happy to talk about the process and you know how he how he did things and why you know why he did things, but like there is a sort of element of it that is just off limits mm. that it's like well if i told you this there wouldn't be a point in in making the film if i explained that sort of subtle reasons and that's kind of why i made the film because i don't want you know he doesn't want people to enjoy his films i mean <laughs> he has said this he doesn't see any value in entertainment it's all about provocation and giving an audience member something to to ponder and think about and potentially be inspired by Um, you know his films are kind of jumping off points rather than like answers Mm -hmm. just Omri Gardas is is kind of style I mean he really he's just following what David was saying he really is you know he works in the kind of tradition of the sort of grand masters of cinema you know taking these big big weighty themes like you know nature and landscape and sex and religion Mm. and and sort of taking them all to task across the other films and this seems to be him perhaps taking like David said, you know, liberalism in a way to task and those kind of liberal liberal ideas. And, uh, you know, as a, as a formalist, I think it's kind of worth mentioning. I mean, there are set pieces in this movie from the, the opening 15 minutes through to this knock-your-jaw-off scene of a plane landing, which is taken from inside the cockpit of a plane as it comes into land that is just one of the most astonishing kind of coups de cinema. It's like, Chris, it's like a Christopher Nolan. Like Christopher <laughs> okay. Nolan is probably so, is going to he's not going to see that but you imagine him seeing that and, and weeping basically. All done for real with like a camera strapped underneath the plane. It's really, really something. Spectacular. Let's put some scores on this, Matt. Uh, what would you give this? I would give it a four in uh, in anticipation, I guess, and then a four while I was watching it, and then a five in retrospect. Wow. I think it's terrific. David? I would give it a three in anticipation because I really didn't like... Although I think his film Silent Light is incredible, the one he did between that, Post Tenebrous Lux, I did not like at all. Mm. He'd gone down a little in my estimation. And also, the film got a really bad reception when it played at the Venice Film Festival last year. Like, the aggregator sites were not happy about this film. So, 
there was a sense that oh god you know he dropped the ball again so but it's I think there is a gradual shifting of sands and yeah so I, I would say same four while I was watching it I think it's this incredibly visual beautiful and totally engrossing film but it does have a couple of visual metaphors which have which have seemed beneath him involving bulls fighting he kind of shifts to these shots <laughs> of bulls fighting and it's a very very kind of on the nose evocation of like machismo and uh, right. and and, and I, every there's a couple of them and I'm and I just think this seems beneath this film. I mean, he's not having that. I had a chat with him when when he was here as well, and and kind of brought that up. And he was like, you know, a bull is just a bull. You know, to a child, a bull means nothing. It is a bull. They work on a bull ranch. Of course, there are bulls there. Okay. And you know, whether uh, whether he, one is to he, buy, he just him. happens to have the scenes of them like locking horns and uh, fighting uh, and, uh-huh. and killing other other sort of invaders. But yeah, I, I'm excited to see it again. I loved it. Um, it's a sort of high, the highest four possible for in retrospect. Wow, okay, so a strong recommendation to use your own time to go and see our time this weekend if you can. Indeed. But up next, we're off to Film Club. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Now it's back to 1995 and Jim Jarmusch for Dead Man. Joey Depp stars as William Blake, an accountant who heads out west for a new job, but when he gets there, the position has already been filled. And after landing squarely in the middle of a lover's quarrel, Blake finds himself wanted for murder, on the run, and embarking on a spiritual journey into the weird wild west with an outcast Native American called Nobody as his companion. Do you have tobacco? We sure don't. Aren't those tins of tobacco right there behind you? Sure are. But those cans are empty. There's no tobacco in them. Perhaps I could interest you in some beads. Or possibly a blanket. Blanket? Yes, my fine fellow. Ammunition. Uh... I'd like some tobacco, please. Well, I may have one or two twists left. From my personal supply, you understand? For good friends only. 
Overlord. You're William Blake. So Johnny Depp, Gary Farmer and Alfred Molina there in a clip from Deadman. I love how this film places so much energy and charge in just single words like tobacco and blankets and those concepts and what they mean within this world that Jarmusch creates. So Matt, tell us a little bit about Deadman. So I rewatched Dead Man last night and I, I think I had it in my mind that it was probably my, my favourite Jarmusch mm. movie and, and I guess it without kind of having revisited the rest I think it probably still is mm. I mean the first thing that struck me quite jarringly but in a, in a good way was having just seen Dead Don't Die the, the night before that um, how different the style of the movie mm. is to that I mean this is you know not that the, the later Jarmusch style isn't cinematic but this is more kind of lushly mm-hmm. cinematic and I mean shot in beautiful beautiful monochrome with this thunderous electric dirge of a score yeah. by, by Neil Young that's just would be in your head for weeks afterwards I mean the film I guess is a journey into death really mm-hmm. it's this kind of Dantean odyssey in which uh Johnny Depp's character is escorted through a Western underworld by the, his Virgil, this, mm. this Indian called Nobody. Johnny Depp's name, uh, character's name in the film is William Blake, which uh, Nobody the, uh, mistakes for the poet William Blake, an artist. And this whole kind of idea of loss of identity, you know, Nobody is the other character's name, sort of permeates through the film, this sort of loss, loss of identity, loss of self, and just kind of the most amazing thing about it, it, the entire movie and seems to exist in this sort of state of suspension. Mm. You know, it, it kind of floats through and it's really, really something. And, and you, yeah, you get all of these kind of Homeric encounters with various buck-toothed, one-toothed, one-eyed, <laughs> grizzled characters, including John Hurt. I mean, it, you can't have a, a grisly contemporary Western without John Hurt in it somewhere. And you know, Robert Mitchum, Billy Bob Thornton, Iggy Pop. It really is a film that, when you revisit it, that the collaborators are who shine through. So Robbie yeah. Muller on, on cinematography, oh, God, yeah. really working at the top of his game. Neil Young watched the film three times through the rough cut and then just improvised on his wow, guitars yeah. and creates that squalling very sort of emotionally responsive uh, yeah. kind of score it's not a piece of music that I'd love to hear it separately from the film because it's so in response to certain scenes and sequences but then the cast as well the way that it's looking forward as you say John Hurt being a guy mm-hmm. who coming after this will show up in the proposition and all sorts of grizzled westerns but then Robert Mitchum turning up as almost a, an emblem of what the west on screen used to mean and just so great to see Johnny Depp, you know, 1995. You know, pre-cancelled. Pre-cancelled <laughs> Johnny Depp, yeah. I mean, his just his face is like a like a sculpture. You know, he doesn't do a lot in, mm-hmm. in the in the film and you know, nobody really does a huge amount in it. And, you know, just I was I was thinking last night, it's just I, I saw this I think this was the first Jarmusch film I saw. I must have been fourteen mm-hmm. when I saw it at the cinema. And just, you know, when you were excited about what Johnny Depp was gonna mm-hmm. do, gonna do, you know, this is the period of kind of raising Arizona and right. And dead man. And yeah, something. well, yeah. it's it's a fascinating period for Johnny Depp, where I suppose he becomes known as Johnny Depp uh, a few years after this, Paris Caribbean onwards, and he comes up and does a Depp sort of performance. But here, he can still be so blank. It's the same year, I suppose, as Edward, or so around similar yeah, time. Nick of time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, and 
Jarmusch talks in contemporary interviews as using that blankness that Joy Depp can bring because he is a guy who's devoid of identity. He's left a life behind to try and find a new life and almost that life is imposed upon him by the circumstances he finds himself in. I think that's what's so interesting about this film is that his career pretty much after this was all about trying to sort of divest himself of the blankness and bring silly ticks and heavy makeup and mm-hmm. in in post Edward Scissorhands like his his stuff with Tim Burton has all been a bit kind of like middling and you know getting gradually worse and worse and you know then Pirates of the Caribbean came and he's sort of become sort of, you know parody stunt supporting guy you know like we we need we need comic relief or we need we need that we need the other but like yeah it's it's it feels like it's been a long time since we got an actual kind of subtle nuanced kind of ethereal performance from him maybe i need to look back at his 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 filmography a maybe bit donnie bit brasco maybe and yeah donnie so brasco you need to go and see the hollywood vampires and see what sort of performance <laughs> he gives in that band oh his band with oh. alice cooper oh uh, and wow. uh steven tyler not steven uh, joe perry from aerosmith you've got joined up on stage with a guitar doing a cover of heroes by david bowie wow. if that's what you want right now mm. <laughs> david what so looking back at Jarmusch's career Matt says it's up there for him probably his favourite I think this is one of his best would this be up there for you? Yeah I, I, I would say so um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the maybe the best entry point I think mm. were I encountering Jim Jarmusch for the first time I think all of his films I think are available to view so like going back to the beginning and seeing you know Permanent Vacation and Stranger Than Paradise and one of his sort of earlier films that I really love is Down by Law, which yeah, is a, yeah. which is a sort of odd th- three blokes prison break movie. It's like if Oh Brother Where Art Thou were good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> throwing down the gauntlet there, and it's uh, Tom Waits, Benini, Roberto Benini, and the jazz saxophonist oh, oh, John Lurie. John Lurie, yeah, and it's just great. And it, I think that's the film Down by Law. I think is the sort of easiest funnest early Jarmusch film that you, re- you can really get into his his vibe and I think yeah Dead Man is maybe the first one where he really kind of pushes it over the edge it mm. sort of feels like you know he's made all these quite quirky indie films like Night on Earth and which is sort of vignettes set, set around the world in various taxis Dead Man feels like a film a guy out to make his magnum opus yeah. like I've, I've messed around a bit and now I'm going for something big I'm going for like the history books here I want books written about this film I suppose that's what diminishes something like The Dead Don't Die for me it, he doesn't it doesn't feel like he has that hunger no, anymore no 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 This the, the impulse is very different I wouldn't say that of maybe Patterson or mm-hmm. you know or, or, or um, Only Lovers Left Alive mm-hmm. I think there's, there's definitely uh the hunger there. I have to shout out in the middle of all this to uh, Ghost Dog, Way of oh, the wow. Samurai, which I think is probably the other contender mm-hmm. for my favourite, Jarmusch, which um, and perhaps more accessible than it was a, a few years later. Well, I think he so, followed this one with, oh, yeah. with Ghost Dog, and it does share a lot of similar DNA of retooling popular genre yeah. to look at the American dream, and but in a more contemporary setting, I suppose, because it's a part samurai, part gangster, gangster movie. movie. Yeah. With Forrest Whitaker giving the performance of his career. Another incredible RZA score. Yeah, exactly. And Gary Farmer, who plays nobody in this, turns up in a cameo role in Ghost Dog. And we should mention him, really. He's really fantastic in this role. And a role that is, I mean, I've not read many 
up to the minute contemporary takes on this film, but certainly at the time was heralded as, a, as something groundbreaking in terms of Native American representation, although he's First Nations, he's Canadian. And I suppose it's quite a fascinating sort of character, isn't it, that nobody? It just, yeah, fantastic. And I do find it interesting that a lot of the, um, in, in almost a Jamashian little arched eyebrow twist, many of the bon mots and the bits of wisdom that, uh, that nobody meters out throughout the film are actually William Blake quotes. They come across almost as almost uh, hackneyed Native right. American wisdom, <laughs> but they're actually quotes from poetry. It's fantastic. Wow. That's, so, that's, uh, that's a spoiler special um, <laughs> element there, isn't it? But it sounds like we're recommending... Ghost Dog maybe is the next film to go for if you enjoy Dead Man go back and watch Down by Law I mean you can't really go wrong with Jarmusch really I think I'm I'm even a massive fan of his most kind of disliked film called Limits of Control Mm, it's amazing which which, um, you know I've got both fingers and toes crossed that it's gonna that's gonna get another a reappraisal pretty soon because I think it's like a really special film but it's it's very very kind of if Dead Man was like, I want to make my magnum opus, then Limits of Control is like, I want to make some art film that nobody's going to see, but it's going to be appreciated by like a f- tiny core crew of uh, Jarmusch heads. <laughs> so stripped back. And yeah. Inside. yeah. Yeah, the first Jarmusch film I saw was Broken Flowers, and I've not rewatched it since release. I wonder how that's... That's his, that's his biggest hit today, yeah. by quite a considerable margin. I suppose that was just straight after Lost in Translation, so Bill Murray yeah, yeah. being front and centre in the film was probably quite a, a box office. It was like a whole... That, I just, that kind of get muddles in my head with all of those movies with, you know, sort of ageing actors going off in a caravan for a few, you know, <laughs> like about Schmidt and uh, so yeah. all of this... Very yeah, obvious time. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen it. So yeah, I, no, I right, saw it on no. release. I haven't seen it since. But I've, if it popped up on Netflix, I'd probably give it yeah. a give it a whirl. whirl. Yeah. Anyway, that was Dead Man. Thank you, gents, for the the chat around Jarmusch. Lots of Jarmusch chat this week. Next week we have the latest from Disney. We had what two weeks off, and our new <laughs> Disney movies back in cinemas. It's The Lion King. It is the CGI quote unquote live action take. Featuring the voices of, gosh, Beyonce, etc. We have an Agnes Varda double bill. We have her final film, Varda by Agnes. And then her 2008 movie, The Beaches of Agnes for Film Club. So let us know what you think of The Beaches of Agnes or any of the films we've spoken about this week at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. David, Matt, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.